0: Hello, hello. This is a brand new voice here on Self Evident. I am Rochelle and I am our community producer here. I am also a very new DJ. And so as a still learning DJ, I brought some of my friends and DJs that I look up to in conversation to learn from each other not just about music, but also about the relationships and stories behind their work and the music that they play. So we have Arshia Fatima Haq from Disco Stan. We have Les Dalusan, aka Les the DJ from Opium Sundays. And we have Roger Bong from Aloha Got Soul. You can learn more about our DJs and their work on our show page at selfevidentshow.com. And to hear our first annual Diaspora Dance Mixtape from Arshia, Les, Roger, and me, tune in to our latest episode by subscribing to Self Evident wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy!
1: So the folks at Self Evident had started hearing about the music stuff that I've been doing here in Chinatown and asked me if I wanted to help produce a mixtape and a conversation with a few DJs and Y'all were the first people that I thought of because as I'm kind of making my way through the music and DJing world, beyond just being a dancer, I have learned a lot from you all in how to bring community and history into music and DJing. So why don't we start by introducing um, yourself by telling me your name, your pronouns, and what you're working on.
2: Well, hello there. I am Les Talusan, a.k.a. Lesa DJ, here in Piscatawayland, Washington, D.C. My pronouns are she, they, them. What am I working on? What am I not working on right now? The usual. OPM Sundays, original Filipino music. I do that. And amongst other things. Now
1: we're going to do like classroom style and you're going to popcorn to
2: someone else. <laughs> oh, I, I didn't go to school in America, so I don't know what that means, but I'm going to pick Roger.
3: <laughs> Thank you. It's so exciting to be here. My name is Roger Bong. I run a record label called Aloha Got Soul here in Honolulu and... Our focus is on music from the islands of all styles, all generations, everything from you know rock and roll made in the 60s, all the way up through new age electronic stuff made in the 90s to music that's being created today.
1: Did you go to school in the US? Do you oh, know what popcorn yeah. is?
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did go. To, I went to school in Mililani, Mililani High School, for all those people listening. <laughs> Good to meet everybody here and Arsha, love to hear your story.
4: Hi everyone, Arsia here, and I do a lot of different things. But the music side of my work is called Discostan, which is now in its 10th year. It started as a radio show and turned into a nightclub event, kind of a collective, and also a record label, focusing mostly on music from the Swana region, uh, Southwest Asia, North Africa, both old and new and currently working on first actual night event since the pandemic started, which will be a fundraiser for what's going on in Afghanistan.
1: Amazing. So I guess just to get us warmed up, I'm going to actually have us jump all the way back to our first memories of music and how we really got into music in general. The first question that I'd love to hear from you all is, could you tell me about where your love for music first started? Arshia, can we start with
4: you? Sure. So it's a story that I love telling, but I got my first cassette when I was in India, which is where I was born. It was around age four. My dad was a big music collector. He took me when I was four to a cassette shop that was on our street and let me pick out something of my own. And I picked out this cassette by a woman named Runa Laila, but it was the super disco meets South Asian disco, Bollywood cosmic extravaganza. And at that time, I didn't really know what it was, but it was a very formative sound for me. Not long after that, we migrated and there was still a lot of back and forth. So music was kind of the bridge or how I navigated moving between two worlds from a very early age. I know that you
1: said that that happened when you were four, but do you happen to remember from when you were four, why you chose that one cassette?
4: The cover is basically a woman that looked like someone that would be from my family, but in this amazing, futuristic gold outfit with a microphone in her hands and kind of looking at the camera very directly. And it was just this very powerful and strong and also was something I could project myself onto because it looked like someone, you know, that I would see in my neighborhood.
3: I think my earliest memories are at my grandmother's apartment. But she had this, one of those old like big consoles or cabinets with the built-in speakers and you put like the records in and then after it's done playing one record, it kicks the next record in and drops it down. My brother and I would go through her collection and listen to her records. That was like my earliest memories of actually intentionally enjoying music. So We would dance around in her living room and whatnot. It, it really goes back to those like early years of just spending time with grandma.
2: Growing up in the Philippines, music is just everywhere. One of my earliest memories that that's like in, embedded in my brain is uh, neighbors clapping to, to the sound of a Cure song to like call each other, close to me by the Cure. But also my parents are big music fans. To put us to nap, my mom would put on Mellow Touch Radio, which is the adult contemporary radio. And also my grandparents would always have the TV on. And, um, you know, noontime shows in the Philippines. It's all singing and dancing. That's my early music memories, like having a tape a Tape in minus one. I don't know if y'all are familiar with minus one, but before it was called karaoke here, like it's, uh, <laughs> it's in minus one, minus the voice. So I had a bunch of minus one tapes. Uh, I would sing to Lea Salonga. I guess folks are familiar with her work in Broadway and, you know. Aladdin. Aladdin
1: (laughs) exactly but like I know her as a child a lot of my early music memories came from when it became karaoke so next step after minus one and my parents would host these big karaoke parties at our house and singing in Cantonese singing all the songs that we would listen to in the car Even though I grew up speaking Cantonese, a lot of the canto pop songs are very romantic songs. And so that was not part of my everyday Cantonese vocabulary at home. So I didn't understand anything that they were saying, but I knew that it was Cantonese. And like sometimes today when I hear songs that I heard in my parents' or my aunt's car, I will immediately flash back to that and feel like I'm a kid again. So I think that's where I first got into music is just from growing up with it as well just kind of like everyone it sounds like our families and our homes were really the place where music came alive for us do you remember your first musical purchase or gift and when and what was it
2: i think it's head on the door by the cure that's like that's what i that's what i remember the first
3: cd i ever bought which was the first piece of music i ever bought was operation ivy you know, my brother was listening to a lot of like punk and, and that kind of music. And I was like, yeah, I want to get into this too. So we drove to Tower Records in um, Pearl City. And that was the first CD I ever bought. And it's funny because I remember my brother on the way home, he's like, "Ah, oh, maybe we shouldn't play this in the car. Just wait till you get home, Roger. Dad, dad's <laughs> probably not going to want to hear this.
4: <laughs> I, I can share what my next purchase that I remember was, which was when I was in suburban America, I wasn't allowed to listen to American music, but I got uh, to go to the mall, and I had some, saved up some money, so I like promptly went to the store and bought Madonna's "Like a Prayer" also on cassette. And then I went to the video game arcade in the mall, and then like promptly lost the cassette. It was a very tragic story. <laughs> but...
2: Oh, it's so weird! Before you said Madonna, I was like, I wonder if she got Madonna. <laughs> yeah.
1: <that's... laughs> Not allowed to listen to American music and then jump straight into Madonna. (laughs) I don't remember my first solo music purchase, but I remember my parents. I think it was specifically my dad convinced me to buy the ABBA Golden Hits album with him. And he was like, yeah, this is a really, really good CD. You should buy it with the money that you... I can't even remember. It must have been from allowance from him. And he was like, yeah, you should buy this CD. And then the moment that I arrived home, the CD disappeared. And I'm pretty sure he had it. But that was my first musical purchase that I also lost. But I think it's somewhere in my
3: home. <laughs> my, my brother used to try and do that to me when we would go to like Tower, right? Yo, yeah, you should buy this. I, I think I was a little too clever to be like, no, I, I'm going to keep looking around.
1: Well, I'm glad one of us made it out of there. Do you all remember a time when you became totally obsessed with a song or an artist that you'd never heard before?
2: Like all the time? Describe
1: one of them. (laughs) Or describe the feeling. Tell us from honeymoon phase through
4: finding your next bay. I remember when I heard Smells Like Teen Spirit for the first time on the radio. And it was kind of crazy because I'd never heard anything that sounded like that before. And was really moved by it. And in retrospect, I think what I really liked about it is that there's something very similar in the instrumentation or notation of, of Indian classical music. You can actually hear it in a lot of Kurt Cobain's early work. So that was kind of the first um, time I remember hearing something and being like very shocked and also just drawn to it immediately in terms of something that was from my immediate environment. But beyond that, I think it was when I started working at a record store and found Turkish music, Turkish psychedelic music for the first time. And this is kind of like maybe early 2000s when reissue. Doing international music was just starting to become a thing because before that no one cared about music from our region so hearing that music and hearing kind of the similarities between some of the stuff I'd heard growing up and also hearing words that I could make out.
3: So right before I graduated high school I actually borrowed some records from a friend's dad who was really into like local music from the 70s which is this breezy super positive sound that kind of blends jazz and soul and aor and rock one record by maki fury band i was just like wow this is such a great record and then i graduated moved to oregon to go to school finished school lived in portland for a year and while i was living in portland i heard this mix called hawaiian breaks that this dj from tokyo put out dj muro And I was like, whoa, how cool is this? This digger from Tokyo is like putting all these like local records, which I had no idea existed. 2010, living in Oregon, heard this Japanese DJ make this mixtape about like soul and funk and jazz from Hawaii. And right smack dab in the middle of that mixtape was a song by Mackie Fury Band. And the song was called A Million Stars. And like right in that moment, all these memories of just like listening to this record over and over and over again in high school just came right back and that. I was really homesick at that time. I'd been away from Hawaii. I was like, okay, this guy's doing something really interesting by excavating all these groovy sounds from the islands that I call home. Almost none of this music I'm even aware of, because my family didn't really have any roots here before we moved here. And I looked online and there was nothing, pretty much nothing, about any of these artists. There wasn't even a track list. DJ Murrow didn't even put out a, in true like digger fashion, right? He didn't put a track list out. He did all the work and wanted people to do the work if they wanted to know. So yeah, that is that is pretty much the reason why I started Aloha God Soul 11 years ago now is because... I knew that there was a need to identify all these songs that were in his mix and share these songs like, like a million stars with people. And so, like I said, I'm, I'm like still going off of this. We just reissued Mackie Fury Band's record in July of 2021. So it's come full circle and we're still going.
1: So you could listen to it over and over and over again from now on.
3: I
2: just real quickly, I just wanted to say that I love Mackie as well. And Raj, you saw, I ordered a couple of copies. And they have the original pressing, the Japanese pressing, and now the Aloha God. So I'm so annoying. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> and that's how I found Roger online, you know. Just like Googling things, you know. I think my first order was an Aura record. Yeah, I
3: think so. And then you Maybe. showed up in Hawaii and we were doing a record fair. And you bought the Ico. <laughs> Seven inch, I think yes. you're. I think Oscar was like, Oscar. Yeah, yeah, yes. Oscar, yeah. who's like super into city pop and Japanese music. And he's like, I go, What? Oh my gosh. So, yeah, yeah,
2: that we we met at a record fair, it was so fun. <laughs> but my song, nothing deep, nothing connected to the Filipino stuff that I play, but uh, my Bloody Valentine's Loveless, the whole album, and not even a song, the whole album. When I first heard it, I was a teenager. Was really really obsessed with that sound. You know when you play a CD so much that they become become a little like the silver stuff. The print like goes away. That's what happened to that CD. <laughs> I was so obsessed with that sound that I eventually had a shoegaze band
4: because <laughs> obsessed with shoegaze. Les, so. that was actually the the album that crossed my mind first. I listened to it. I think almost every day for a few years in my early 20s I knew every sound I figured out some of the words you know there's so much in it you can just keep discovering until now until now
2: when I listen to that album because sometimes I would uh DJ on twitch and I would do an all shoegaze set and the honeymoon phase is still there still obsessed
1: <laughs> oh I love that there were so many memories that just kind of popped up from all of the things that you said like especially less when you're talking about the CDs that wearing out my dad also he has a big record collection which I have been inheriting from him he used to be so particular about his records that he would pick out his favorite songs and then record them on a cassette tape so he could play just his favorite songs and make a mixtape for the car and also so he wouldn't have to keep playing his records and scratch the records
0: So what role do
1: you all see music playing in communities, especially for folks in the diaspora?
3: Well, Hawaii is a pretty small place. Everybody knows everybody. And aside from music, one of the connecting factors, if you grew up here, is what high school did you go to? You know, you went there, so you might know this person. What year did you graduate? So that being said, where you're from in terms of what high school you went to, but also the music from here, just instantly connects at least Hawaii's diaspora. I've heard stories of like people going to college on the West Coast or the East Coast and hanging out at a party and they'll just throw on a song by, let's say, Kalapana, which is from the 70s, was Mackie Fury's first group. And like somebody across the room will just be like, hold up, you know Kalapana? You gotta be from Hawaii. And so that will instantly connect those two people. If I'm gonna connect it to what I've been doing, the record carries so much with it Over the years, I mean, Rochelle, you know, you're inheriting all these family collections, right? And embedded into this vinyl are all these stories, not only from the musicians, but the people who own them. So there's so many ways, big and small, that connect people.
1: Would people know from the music that, they hear other people playing. What high school they went to? Was it that specific, th- or was that's it- a good
3: question? I don't think it's that specific. It's more like, oh, who's your cousin, okay. kind of thing. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. They went, uh, but but definitely like just the music in general. Three plus Kalapana, uh, Ten Feet, mm-hmm. all these kind of island bands. Like someone like Les, right? She discovered all this music from Hawaii just by digging, and and it it allows someone like Les who might not have any connection here previously to to feel like she can be a part of it. And that door is wide open for anybody who's curious enough to walk through it.
2: It's funny you gave Kalapana as the example because anyone who I hear play Kalapana is either from Hawaii or from the Philippines because they were really, really big back home as well. The Hurt became such a dance floor jam. And there's even like a Filipino remix do you have that? of the Hurt. Do you
3: have that? That is a rare. Do you record. want me to send
2: you the digital? No, I don't have the. I don't have the 12 okay. inch. Someone's selling it for like 400. No, it's it's at a thousand
3: do dollars do right now.
2: <laughs> oh my god! I should have gotten the. No, I shouldn't have gotten the 400. <laughs> so I moved here in '99, and I guess I, I started DJing shortly after. Then here as well, because I've been DJing in the Philippines. But I sneak in Filipino music to my gigs before. Just, you know, here in D.C., there's not a lot of Filipinos. Compared to, let's say, Hawaii, New York, or California, you know. Someone was joking to me recently, like, oh, so are there a lot of Filipino DJs there? I was like, "Mm, not really. And they were joking how in San Francisco, it's like every sneeze, there's a Filipino DJ. (laughs) 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 So I think I just, you know when i used to dj at a store in the mall and i would hear filipinos in the crowd i would start playing some filipino music and this is like records i would bl- bring records and cd's at this thing and just to just to connect with them right but since the pandemic started i've been djing online doing all opm sets OPM is original Filipino music, but really it's OPM Plus. Plus is uh, roots, pop, and covers from the Philippines in a diaspora. But what does it do to community? It's just, Filipinos, we're underdogs, and I hate it. I want people to know that we make good music, that we're everywhere, but we're nowhere. I just want to share our music. Every Sunday, Twitch is a gathering place.
1: That's what it does is just, you know, to gather and hang out. When you snuck in those Filipino songs, when you heard other folks in the crowd, what were those reactions like?
2: Actually, I was hired by Smithsonian APA Center to, to DJ an event with Filipino Americans from California. And the only thing that they said was like, play whatever you want. But then I was like. Oh my God, I'm going to play all Filipino and Filipino-American music. And I started my set with uh, Stockton, California's own The Third Wave. They're a group of Filipino sisters. And, you know, the the reactions I got was someone came up to me and was like, I didn't know our people made this kind of music. Because they were Filipino-Americans and all they've heard are the folky and then the more dramatic, like Kundiman, which is a romantic love song, Filipino style. I was like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep doing this. I mean, no one could stop me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I'm gonna do it anyways, even if they didn't like it, you know. I'm just very stubborn. Yeah, anyways.
4: I think it's interesting that for all of us, it seems that the love came from family members. There is definitely, I think, something about migration and the tie to music and I think you know for the communities that I'm working with especially because so many of our homelands are in conflict there's a really important piece of of that which relates to embodiment and joy being part of how we resist so even with doing this Amazon music fundraiser, you know, I really tried to find people that were in the diaspora from that community. People would reach out to me and ask me to do radio shows or do this or that. And I was really kind of feeling like I can do that, but there's people from that community who should be making those playlists, not me. I mean, I'm from the region, but there's a lot of silencing and decentering that happens. And so we start in the club and bring these different diasporas together that have had pre-colonial and post-colonial shared traumas, especially post 9-11 and how that kind of changed a lot of things for anyone that looked Muslim in this country. Also, there is this thing about there are a lot of contentious lines in, in our regions and songs can often be something that is a way to soothe the bruises and really bring some sort of kinship together even in places where you might not find it so yeah it's a way to embody all of the aspects you know it's also a place where you can all mourn together when there's a conflict happening in your part of the world or some kind of issue and no one else seems to care about it it's one thing to be in a space with people who are oblivious to what's going on and it's another thing to be on a dance floor with people who understand that history and that pain and also to be able to come together is a form of, I don't know, resilience or celebration.
1: I love it. And I I know that I've read like something that you've written before about describing like the origins of Disco Stan and as a, as a place. Can you talk a little bit about that?
4: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously Stan is a suffix that means land. So that's why you have Uzbekistan or, you know, Kazakhstan or any of the Stans. So, Being from two different places or multiple places and not being from anywhere at once, it was kind of this desire to create a fictional republic that wasn't really about your national belonging and kind of was also a little bit humorous about how tied people become to their national identities. And also to really think about transnational connections again.
1: Yeah, that's something that I think a lot about with the records that I've been inheriting from folks. Because like I was saying earlier, is all of the records that I play are inherited from either my own family or from my neighbors here in Chinatown. And so often from when I inherit them, from my neighbors, they tell me that the records just have all been sitting in their apartment for the past few decades, and there have been multiple occasions where either their mom or their dad told them to throw it out and throw the whole collections out. And when I hear that, my heart drops to think of not only the records themselves, but the fact that these are artifacts. From listening to them, it it really feels like they were kind of a bridge for a lot of immigrants here in Chinatown back to Hong Kong or China or Taiwan. And like one of the biggest examples of that is that almost every single one of these records comes with a little booklet inside. And it's a music booklet. It has chords. It has all of the lyrics. And as I was digging more into it and talking with my neighbors about it, they were saying that these booklets were meant for people in the Chinese diaspora to learn These songs across all dialects, because even if the song is sung in Mandarin, someone who speaks Cantonese could sing it, someone who who speaks another dialect can sing it. Every time I play these songs, so many of my neighbors know every single word. And so I wonder sometimes if they even ever looked at the booklet or if it was just because they heard these songs over and over and over again. And so many people, even folks I'm not inheriting records from, have memories of these songs and so... It really feels like these records are not just me putting out a mysterious mixtape that people will have to dig up the songs themselves. And that's something that I was really connecting with what you said, Roger, of like, All of these different kinds of shows shouldn't be about us collecting music and hiding it away from people as the rarest ones that only we know about. Every time I put out a show, I put out a track list of every single song and artist that's on there so that people can start to dig for this music. Because if people don't know how to write or read Chinese characters, then it's hard for people to get started. But once you trigger that YouTube algorithm, then you'll find so many just from one song The work that I do with music is so much tied to these stories and tied to the people behind the music. So I would love to hear from you all how what is your process of learning about the people behind the stories and how do you incorporate that into your DJing, into the labels, into all kinds of your work? I'm going
2: to start because I don't have a record label. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fine, Roger, go ahead.
3: No, I wanted to say something that, before we move on, all three of you said something that resonated. So I'm going to try to connect the dots here. My family didn't have any ties to Hawaii when we first moved here. And in fact, my dad was born on the East Coast, but his parents moved to America from the Netherlands of all places. And not only that, they're originally from Indonesia but they're Chinese. And so my heritage in terms of Chinese and who knows, maybe even some Indonesian in me, I don't know, has essentially been like severed because of these complicated Asian American ties or identities. And so, you know, one of the things that I struggle with is who am I? I was raised in Hawaii, but I wasn't born here. I love this music and I, I really tried to do my best to champion it. But it's not like I have any native Hawaiian blood in me. A lot of the times I ask myself this question, like, not only who am I, but what is my purpose? And and why do I continue to do this thing that I do? And I think the answer ends up being, like, somebody has to do it. And if it's going to be me, I would like to do it in the most righteous way possible. And here in Hawaii, the word for that is pono, to be righteous, to do something properly or with honor so even though I don't have any roots in Hawaii prior to just growing up here I still feel like a responsibility or a duty to bring this kind of music to the world and Rochelle I mean you too with inheriting these collections I'm sure there's a huge sense of duty on your part to not only share the music but also the personal stories that came with them our identities are all over the map and music really grounds us.
1: Uh, I'm horrible and have forgotten the
4: question. question. Yeah, I am so sorry.
1: (laughs) Well, the question is, how do you learn about and incorporate the stories and people behind the music into your work?
2: By asking them directly. The artists that are still alive. Being partners with Joel Kizan for OPM Sundays, we decided a few months ago to do Usapang OPM. It means like OPM talk or OPM chat. And we were able to talk to the people who actually made up the term OPM, which was amazing. We're trying to talk to more of the artists that we Mm. do play. Why should people care about that? Know your roots, (laughs) right? I don't know. They don't have to care about it, but I care. I care that people know how things were started. Because this all spawned in the middle of the freaking martial law when the Marcuses were in power when you think about it it, it makes me mad because it's like uh, the Manila Sound and the resurgence of opium at that time was partially funded by um, or maybe mostly funded by
1: Imelda Marcos. She's horrible. That reminds me too of um, I've been digging a lot into the history of canto pop mostly from Hong Kong and before the 70s, most of the Chinese music that was coming out was in Mandarin, because there's a larger Mandarin speaking population. And so you'll sell more. But in the 70s and 80s, as Hong Kong was rapidly approaching the time when Hong Kong would be returned from the UK back to China, people in Hong Kong started realizing that they needed a Cantonese identity as Hong Kongers. And so that's actually how Cantopop Pop came about people started singing in Cantonese because they wanted to create this identity and these artifacts of their language and of their culture. And when I first learned about that, I realized that I didn't know that it was part of the work that I was trying to do, but it it makes sense to me now because as I'm trying to also sort through all of the different identities that I hold, um, like you said, Roger, it feels like there's just so many moving pieces. And for me, this music... And learning that there is history that has grounded this music gives me a little bit of stability, knowing that, one, this music kind of arose in protest, and two, to know that this music, it reminded my parents of home. For me, that's why it's important to know these stories behind the records, because I'm not just trying to pump out content. This music work that I'm doing is a way for me to connect to my identities and also trying to keep from feeling too lost in it. It's been simmering in my head, but uh, I want to be the one to be able to
2: share this music before white people figure it all out, you know. Like I want people who look like me to be able to share our people's music. As I was discussing with Rochelle recently, OPM is so expensive. Yeah, there's a demand.: Who can
3: there's afford a high those records?? Now.
2: That's what I'm saying. Our people cannot afford this. Rec- these records. I've actually written to a Discog seller who was selling like a $2,000 compilation that I've wanted for a long time. Well, he, he lists a lot of stuff, but I told him to, to please block me because I can't afford this. And like, who are you trying to sell to? You know, it's exploitative. I, I think it's, I don't know. Yeah. I was
4: just, I was going to say, there's so many thoughts that kind of came through my mind through the last few responses. And about, well, one, the invisibility of, of playlists or not naming everything. And while there's a part of me that also understands why it is good to name everything, then there's a, a little part of me that's going to, then they're going to know our secrets. And this is part of what the commodification is. And this is why the prices are this on Discogs. And, and so it's, it's complicated. And also totally agree with you, Les. I actually posted on DiscoSan like maybe a couple of months ago just this proclamation that anyone selling records needs to give a special price for people if they're selling back to people of origin. That's what I'm saying. And actually... (laughs)
2: That's what I'm saying. I actually like your post. I like that post.
4: (laughs) One person did reach out to me and sell sell me the record I was looking for at at a reasonable (laughs) price. So that was... There's actually a few people that have, you know, kind of responded to that. But it's very complicated. I was also thinking about how much we have to think about our identities. And Roger, are you thinking through so much and kind of the torture do I have the right you know it's it's like they wouldn't think about this at all <laughs> you know they haven't thought about it at all historically they don't think about it music from specifically from India and Pakistan there's been this interest and exploitation and self exploitation of that music and so with the work that we do at Discosan, a lot of it is about just changing language to describe the music, you know, from the very basic things like exotic to also this thing about discovery, like unheard of, rare, like all these kinds of sensationalist words. Even digging, even digging.
2: Rare groove r- rubs yeah. me the wrong way. Rare yeah, groove absolutely. From the Philippines rubs me the
4: wrong way. Digging, digging is a problem, I think.
2: I think it's funny. I think it's a funny term because I've heard it more from people in Japan and obviously English is not their first language. It doesn't bother me as much. I just think it's a funny term. But it also
4: has this connotation of being something that was hidden and not known, but it was known to so many people. It just wasn't known to whoever has been the arbiter.
3: I mean, I got to admit, I don't put any track lists up on our vinyl factory sets. The reason being... I run a record label and if I put any of this stuff out there, other people run record labels and they're doing reissue work just like I'm doing. But there might be some labels out there that have way more resources at their disposal than I do to license this music before I get a chance to. And it's happened before, that's for sure. But I would like Aloha Got Soul to be hopefully the label that helps to present a lot of this music so that's just a disclaimer if you check out my videos on final factory you won't see a playlist i saw yours (laughs) rochelle (laughs) i I was gonna
2: say though i was gonna say that a lot of the times like i I recently have a 60s beat like soul mix for um wfmu and you know they put all the tracks there everything you know and a lot of there's like $300 seven inches there that obviously I didn't get for that much. I don't mind that. But also on my radio show, though, for Eaton, I don't always put out the track list because sometimes it's like I do so much work already. <laughs> do some of <laughs> the work. Do a little bit of the work, too. Arsha, by the way, I have uh I have Disco to Stan. Zero, zero, zero. Yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Nerman. I oh, have it here somewhere. Amazing. I play it.
4: Roger, I feel I feel your pain about the resources and the. it's already happened, <laughs> by the way.
1: God. <laughs> I know you just launched the label this year, right?
4: Yeah. After thinking about it for 10 years and really thinking about it, you know, and um, actually I went to a bunch of other labels before we decided to do our own to bring the record to them, you know, because I was just doubting, oh, I don't, they already have the networks, they know how to do it, That you know, I want to make sure the record gets the press it deserves. And a lot of people were like, oh, this this isn't the sound, this is to this, too synth, too femme, to this. And the record sold out within two months. And then suddenly there's other people who are really interested in releasing that kind of sound. So yeah, but it took a long time to just kind of get over that hurdle in my own head about what constitutes expertise. Mm. Can you, oh. can you
1: dig into that a little bit? Yeah, I was going to say. Well, I mean, I think that. <laughs> the idea
4: of all of the disciplines like ethnography, ethnomusicology, even to this day, I would say, came from a deeply racist place, or at least in how things were framed. And, and I think that still persists in the language that we see. Even today to sell records of other music, but yeah, it's it's also just this idea of who decides what is worth listening to, this idea of expertise and power and institutions and what did get exported from from a lot of countries before until until recently.
3: I would love to say something about all of that. <laughs> I've been running Aloha Soul as a label since twenty fifteen. And you know, in our first year, we did one record by Mike Lundy, and that was all we did the whole first year. And now we're, I just, we just finalized next year's release schedule, and we got like 15 different artists lined up for release. And to me, it's crazy. That's a lot of work. Beyond that, there's like 15 plus more records we wish we could release next year, but we just don't have the resources right now. But what I've learned is you do what you can do. Even though I want to do it all, I know that I'm only one person and I have the help of these friends whom I really trust. And we're going to do our best at what we have committed to doing. And then on top of that, what really matters to me, at least, is sharing this music from the perspective from which I see it how it affects me personally. And I think that really resonates with others is the story that comes with the music, whether it's the artist's story or my personal story or just story of, say, Hawaii is a greater community and how that stuff affected. But the one thing I really want, like you asked earlier, why should people care? Like, why should people care about what we're trying to do? And I think the main thing is, is that we can prove, I don't even know if we need to prove, but we can show others that, hey, this music is not kitschy. It's not provincial. It's not, it, it can actually stand up against all these great artists and great cities and music that's being created at quote-unquote high-level standards that say you wouldn't imagine musicians from Hawaii being able to reach that level. But when you're able to throw something into a DJ set, for example, and people are like, wait a second, what is this? And you're like, oh, this is from Hawaii. This is from India. This is from the Philippines. But I think eventually, I think one of the goals that I really want to achieve is to just show young people that this is possible. You can make whatever kind of music you want to make. You don't have to conform... To anybody else's ideal of what you should be
1: as somebody who just came into doing music through DJing and cultural archiving just a year ago I am not anywhere close to an expert especially because I can't read Chinese I can't write Chinese so a lot of what I've been learning about the records are from my neighbors or from people who listen to this kind of music and I still have a lot of feelings about, like, I am not a DJ. I don't know how to mix. I just put one song on and put the next song on. And then, and the whole time it has felt like this is not something that I have ever had to do alone. And so it feels... Like, I'm I'm working on digitizing these records with my na- one of my neighbors right now, and she's in her 80s and taught her how to use Google Docs so that we can populate this written archive together because she reads and writes Chinese. So it's like the ways in which we've all been kind of doing music and exploring and sharing music has been about building and growing this community of folks who are interested in the music and also want to be a part of it with us.
3: I need to shout out to my label partner Vinyl Don hmm. Don Hernandez in LA he, <laughs> he does most of the mixes and like you know live streaming events and whatnot that Aloha Got Soul puts out nowadays and he could be a good example of of someone who just found this music so close to his heart and just felt a need to to listen further he was born and raised in Los Angeles spent some time in Hawaii with family on vacation and whatnot but something clicked for him And it's great because we can nerd out so heavily and just dive into these rabbit holes of music from Hawaii that you might not even know exist.
1: What is the significance of creating these spaces to share and celebrate music with each other, especially multi-generational? Because I think now the dance and music world can lean very young. And a lot of the history that comes with the music lies in older generations. So where do you see your music and all your work coming in to tie all those together. So you
2: know, what's been happening with OPM Sundays in the past, uh, in October will be our first year of streaming on Twitch, but I started streaming on Instagram. Uh, I think April is that it has become a gathering place for elders and also kids. I mean, it, there are literally kids in the stream. They're like, Tita Less. I'm, you know, she, they're like five years old. Like, I like this song, you know? And uh, they're Filipino-American kids, you know? And then there's someone in the chat, sometimes he would come in, Roger Rigore, who is one of the members of VST and & Company, and VST and & Company is one of the most important bands that shape the Manila sound. He comes into the chats and, you know, he'll be like, oh, can you play this song by Jakiri?" I don't know, I just think it's important to create space to listen and to just reminisce. A friend's mom was tuned in one time and he videoed his mom just singing along to like everything I was playing. (laughs) And that was really sweet. But sometimes I don't always play like all older stuff. Sometimes it's new stuff. So there are people who get introduced to this. For me,
4: it's interesting because, you know, also like less, it's, it's not just vintage music or older music. And even a lot of that music is actually stuff that I was listening to in my childhood, which has now become vintage. But there's also, for for me, it's important to play new music from diasporas or even within the regions, how people are re- reinterpreting this music or their sounds, you know, people now more and more sampling folkloric sounds, for example, folk instruments into edits that they're doing or dance music in a way that's informed from having inherited this music, is all really important because I think nostalgia can actually be really dangerous, especially for people in diaspora. It can be something that keeps you in the idea of a particular golden moment in the past, and then maybe not considering how things have evolved or grown or are still continuing to be rich and productive. And that's especially important, I think, for conflict regions, because Actually, there's a lot of instrumentalization of nostalgia to justify invasions even to the present day of restoring to a certain time of, you know, when things were free here or there or whatever. And yes, yeah, so it's complicated.
3: I think for me and people my age and younger, I think it's important for us to look to the past so we can situate ourselves in the, in the present and, and build a future that we, we want to build for ourselves. But also, I just really appreciate when older musicians say to me, thank you for remembering us. Thank you for helping this music to live on. And it's if that was the only thing that I was doing this for, I mean, I'm good. I can, I can retire from this because it feels so good to hear that from your elders.
2: Can I read you a letter? This is from Roger Rigor, who I was talking about, who is in BSD and Company. He said, Dear Les, just a small token of acknowledgments for your unabashed initiative. We now see a clear spawning of a culture here in the U.S. that truly appreciates that which was the 70s OPM era. Many will be grateful for your work, your vision, and your dedication. I know we are. Carry on, mga kakosa sa musikang OPM, or like my mates in OPM music. And on behalf of the guys of VST and company, maraming salamat. Roger Rigor, And this is just like, it's so crazy because I just do things because I do them. Sometimes I don't think too deep. But when you get seen, yeah. that was crazy. I, think- I was like, you understand
4: me? <laughs> yeah. but is that a handwritten letter?
1: Yeah, it is. It's a handwritten wow. letter. Wow. I put it here next to Jollibee. Yeah. I think one thing that I was just tying all together from what you all just said is, especially what Ashia was saying about how nostalgia can can get us stuck. And one thing that I really love about this work that I've been doing and being able to talk to my elders and my neighbors is that they lived through this music in its heyday. And now they're seeing... Me, as a young person who didn't live through that and seeing the things that that are coming from this music now and how it can continue on, to me, it just shows that we're not the only ones learning as young people. We're not the only ones learning from older folks, but older folks can also learn from us as younger folks. And there is that exchange of knowledge and exchange of care in this work that keeps us moving forward rather than just going backwards all the time. I have felt that the whole time in doing this work. And so I'm really, really happy to hear that you all have those feelings of looking into the future as well and really incorporating that into your work and bringing your communities, your identities, the histories into everything that you do. I'm just really excited to keep learning from you all as a very new DJ still And just wanted to thank y'all for being here today and hanging out with me and meeting each other and just nerding out, honestly.
4: (laughs) Thanks for inviting us, Rochelle.
3: Thank you for this opportunity and great to meet you, Arsha.
4: Good to meet all of you too. Thank you so much. And I just had a question. Les, where are you based? I am in Washington DC. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you said yeah, that yeah. Yeah.
2: so I moved to the US in ninety nine to Maryland, like blocks away from the DC line. Whoa. But yeah, been here longer than oh, the Philippines. Yeah. I got two copies of your your oh, first wow. release, by the way. I sent one to my home because uh, I was like, You're gonna oh, love this really? show. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same with the uh, Mackey Fury reissue. I got the extra to send to my friend in the Philippines. Oh, my gosh.
1: Yay. Well, I have a record for you, Les, that I have three copies. Oh,
2: my God. (laughs) I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm going to see you soon, I swear. Yeah,
1: we'll come back for round two. (laughs) All right. We'll talk soon. Have
0: a good day. Take care. Bye. Bye. This episode was produced by Rochelle Kwan. We were edited by Julia Shu and James Boo with help from Sheena Tan. Our theme music is by Dorian Love. Check the show notes for more details about the music and our DJs. Self-evident is a studio to be production. Our executive producer is Ken Akeda. This episode was made with support from PRX and Google Podcast Creator Program and of course our listener community. You can follow us on the socials at Self Evident Show. I'm Kathy Urway. Let's talk soon. Until then, keep dancing.